everybody. Welcome to ARE Live. I'm uh, Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm again with Mike Newman, and we're going to be discussing our study guide for ARE 5.0, which, uh, which launched just a mere 30 days ago. Um, we're going to talk about, um, you know, how ARE 5.0 differs from the old exam, the new question types you can mm -hmm. expect, <clears throat> how to prepare for them, strategies and best practices for the exam order. We're going to talk a little bit about something crazy called cognitive complexity um, and why it should matter to you, among other things. Uh, before we get started, um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, where we're going to be focusing on a sample case study for the practice management exam, you can go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. And during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions to the group and Mike. Um, I did want to mention to everybody that um, just before Thanksgiving, we launched our five exam plan membership, <clears throat> which gives you access to the five courses we've built, um, you know, which, which covers the ARE four to five transition plan. So check that out if you're doing the five exam plan. And as always, if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses uh, for any size firm. Uh, whether you work at 10 or uh, 10,000 person firm, we have licenses that give multiple users access. Uh, with group admin and reporting and all that good stuff. So uh, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about that. And then as always, today we'll be sharing a promo code uh, for all of you uh, five exam plan warriors to share our, uh, to share to all of you. So be sure to stick around to the end. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I'm here with Mike Newman. If you don't know Mike, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep curriculum, um, which you can find over at blackspectacles.com. Today, we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live uh, podcast hashtag. Uh, so with that, I'll go ahead and uh, hand it over to Mike. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, so yes, we're talking about the ARE 5.0 and kind of the transition from 4.0, but also just sort of generally kind of the, the state of the exam uh, right now and kind of how you might think about uh, getting ready for it. Uh, so we've got a couple different topics, but uh, please feel free to send your questions if you've got something in specific that you want us to, uh, to discuss uh, along these lines. But let's just sort of uh, jump in and start, uh, start getting into it. So the first question really is just, is the new exam different? And the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, that in terms of the organization of the exam, there's a significant difference to the way that the 5.0 is going to be organized compared to how the 4.0 and the previous 3.1 and 3.0 were done. Uh, and that the gist of that organizational difference, and you've probably heard us uh, or heard somebody say this uh, before already, but just to kind of bring everybody up to speed, the gist of it is that the previous versions have been silos. So you have a structure silo, you have a systems silo, a contract silo, a uh, planning silo. So just different groups of information and an exam that goes uh, directly towards that group of information. This exam is going to be organized in a different way. This one, it has a little bit of some similar elements. It's going to have uh, a practice management exam, a, a project management exam, but then it's going to have a sequence of four exams that are really organized from the beginning of a project all the way through construction of a project. So you can imagine that it's organized chronology through, with a chronology. 
so that uh, you're thinking about early issues of uh, programming and that kind of thing, and then into design, and then into sort of documenting that design, and then into the construction. So that organization means that you actually will find the information at different points along the way. So for example, if the 4.0 had a structures silo, well, this one, you might have a structures type question on two or even three different exams because there will be structures issues at the planning phase. There'll be structures issues at the documentation phase. And so these, each of these different things that used to be grouped together in these specific silos or buckets now is sort of spread across uh, the entire exam, or at least portions of the exam. Similar uh, issues might be said about the contracts. Uh, you could easily have contract discussions at uh, practice management, at project management, at uh, programming, at uh, uh, design phases, certainly at uh, the construction uh, phase of a project. So it's a different mindset, it's a different organization, which is this sense that instead of it being about a topic, it's now something that we're talking about. It's trying to be about the industry. It's trying to be about the way that we normally do projects. So thinking in the big scale, how do I organize my firm? Then in a project, how do I organize a project? And then from the early phase of a project into the middle phases, into the latter phases, into the actual construction, and then we evaluate it and we're done. So it's really trying to sort of tip that idea of uh, now I'll just think about structures or now I'll just think about systems and really sort of get rid of that way of thinking and put it into this much more sort of um, familiar format of this is how a project works. So from an organizational standpoint, that's the big difference. And it is a big difference. And Mike, let me, let me just interject here for a sec. Um, thinking about the practice management, which we, I like to call exam one, mm -hmm. and the project management exam, which I like to call exam two, um, you can almost kind of group, I mean, you tell me if you agree with this, um, you can kind of group those into like uh, into their own little bucket in terms yeah. of the way those exams are handled. And then exams three, four, five, and six are sort of, you know, schematic design, design development, construction documents, and CA, yep. basically. That's and exactly Basically, it. it walks you through the design process from, from schematic design to CA. But then, th but then before that, those first two exams, there are sort of these independent ones. They're almost kind of silo-y in a way. Yeah, I, I would actually say that instead of this being uh, six exams, I would think of it as two and four exams. Yeah. It really, they feel to me like they're broken out in that way. And that when you're thinking about the four chronological ones, they really go together. Now, there's various reasons which we'll get to. We might want to not necessarily do them in that order, uh, but they, they definitely logically fit together. And the first two, the practice and project management, clearly are meant to sort of fit together in, well, what's the big picture of how we create a firm and have a place in the industry and have insurance and you know, do all of those kinds of things? But then also, like, well, how do, what does that mean in terms of getting a job and how do, you, how do you get a project and how do you put together a team and right. all of those things that a project management would really be about, which are pretty abstract and kind of the kind of big scale ideas about how you move into the industry. Yeah. 
and then you get very specific about that, you know, three, four, five, and six uh, of just moving through a project. And when you're talking about, as you were a moment ago, about how <clears throat> the exam has sort of moved from a very siloed approach to one where they kind of sprinkle the topics throughout everything, I think if you, if you use structures as a good example, you know, structures doesn't really show up in those first two exams in ARE 5 but it is sprinkled throughout exams three, four, five, and six, right? It's, you right. know, you have to deal with structures a little bit in schematic design and DD and CDs and CA. So in a way, it's like, it's kind of like there's a little siloing left with those first two exams. <laughs> right. yeah. um, and then exams three, four, five, and six, those are the ones that really kind of walk you That's through really the process. Blow out the thing. <laughs> and it's also important to remember that, you know, it's not like this wasn't, there wasn't overlap in 4.0 and in the previous yeah, ones, right. you know, there was certainly contract questions in programming, planning, and practice, as well as construction documents and services, as well as some of the other ones. So, you know, there was definitely some overlap already anyway. It's just this one is, uh, it's much more uh, sort of built in that way. And there's something kind of interesting about that. Uh, and, you know, structures is sort of an interesting example. Uh, both structures and, and systems, I think, are, are kind of specific and interesting examples where uh, the, the idea that there's no longer a structures exam, there's probably quite a few people who are happy to hear that. Yeah, me. Uh, <laughs> including Mark. Um, but then it's a little daunting that instead of just like biting the bullet, sitting down and you know, reading a bunch of books and going through the videos and doing the thing and just focusing on structures for, you know, you take July off and focus on structures. Uh, instead of doing that, now I have to kind of do a little bit of it all the way along as I'm moving through the process. So it reduces that big, heavy sort of scare, but at the same time, it stretches it out. It kind of pulls it out. Uh, and I have to do it through the essentially whole process. But there's this other thing about it as well, which is it's no longer there aren't that many structures questions. There's going to be fewer structures questions on this 5.0 exam than the full 4.0 structures exam uh, uh, from, the, from the previous. So even though you'll have more opportunity for structures questions, in total, there will be fewer questions. The tricky part, though, is we don't know which fewer questions. Right, right. Uh, so you essentially still have to look at the, the pretty much the same wide range. I think there's a few issues that we can say are probably not going to make it onto the uh, uh, 5.0 version, but essentially you still have to look at the same pretty wide spectrum in order to really be able to answer the fewer questions that you would get. I would think it's going to be a little bit more sort of familiar, right? Because the structures questions are going to show up in exams three, four, five, and six. Um, maybe not even that much in six. And you're going to be, if you're working in a practice, if you're working in an office, you're going to be sort of familiar with seeing structures show up a little bit early. Yeah, and, then and that's so the forth. entire point. Right. The entire point is that uh, we are making it more like uh, what it's like in the office. So, the, and the, the good part about that, which I think is what you were alluding to, is instead of having a question that is just sort of out of, out of the blue and just sort of this random like, here's a question about structures and you don't have any idea what the context is, well now you're taking that exam that's about the programming phase and there's a question about structures, 
well, you know it's not about the number of bolts it's gonna take to put the beam into the uh, you know, uh, column. Right? That's too detailed for a programming phase. You know it's going to be kind of what's the big scale, what's the, you know, am I doing long span, am I not doing long span? Is there maybe a soils question or something like that that would make sense in that early phase of a project? And then later down the road, when I'm uh, doing, for example, exam five, the, the one that's really about the kind of CD set kind of range of uh, information, if I get a structures question in there, I know it's not gonna be some sort of abstract question about, well, what sh maybe we should think about doing long span, right? Like that doesn't make sense at that point in the project. Uh, it would have to be a detailed question and it's very clear that they're looking for a calculation or some uh, very specific understanding of uh, like how things actually get put together. So the sheer fact that uh, they're spread out in these different exams, the positive of that really is that you now have at least a little bit of context just from the nature of the exam itself to understand what kind of question it is and to help you sort of guide you in how you should be thinking about it. And I think, <clears throat> um, just to add on to one of the things you were talking about, guys, don't forget, the first exam, this practice management one, which, which we're doing an ARE live on in January, <laughs> is almost entirely new content that they're assessing you on. Um, the folks at NCARB said that they discovered that running a practice is one of the highest litigated uh, topics for in architecture, and so they realized that in order to get you your license, you really need to have a good understanding of how to put together a practice, basically how to run a business, right. um, which they had never really done, I think, in as maybe as thorough a in way In as clear a way. There's definitely, I would, I would bet that probably 30% of the questions are ones that have been around for a while, but they're definitely adding a whole new range of, of questions and, and emphasizing it in a way that they haven't in the past. And that is coming from a very specific place. That's not just uh, NCARB thinking, hey, wouldn't it be good if we you know, made a new exam? That'll get those guys. Yeah. Uh, it comes from doing interviews with young architects, with uh, architects that uh, run hiring in their firms, uh, uh, with uh, you know principals around uh, the country, and uh, it's a pretty extensive uh, set of interviews that they did. And through that process, they realized that the one thing that everybody talked about was, well, it's great that people you know coming into the uh, system know something about how to make the you know st some structural or some system decisions and things like that. That's great. But if they're going to do something silly on a job site that's going to get us sued, uh, well, that's not going to be great. Or for that matter, if I'm a young architect and I get licensed, wouldn't it be good if I felt comfortable knowing how to actually start a firm and what to do? And you know, nobody expects that you're going to study for the exam and know immediately how to run a whole firm. But at least you start thinking about those issues when you're studying for the exam and you start uh, thinking about, well, how does insurance work? Where would I, uh, you know, how would I start to put together a team that I would work with? And uh, how do I start to place myself uh, out in the world from an advertising standpoint and answering RFPs and uh, things like that? So that, be that was one of those sort of glaring omissions that they realized that the exam wasn't helping out at all 
uh, wasn't useful to young architects as they were coming through, wasn't useful to uh, the firms that are out there that were feeling that there was this big gaping hole with the architects that were coming in that, that weren't getting that information from their design schools. And so like people were uh, not prepared to be sort of running a practice. And yet, you know, it's quite likely you start working for somebody, it's quite likely, you know, five, six years into working for somebody, you're really the person who's running the practice. Principals are often, you know, trying to meet clients and doing whatever, right? There's somebody else in the firm that's actually got to make it happen. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's young architects who are really in that role. And so that realization was a big, big one. Yeah. So this whole thing, Mike, this is going to be a lot easier exam, right? <laughs> piece of cake. Yeah, piece of cake. I, I wouldn't worry about it at all. In fact, I don't even know why you're listening. Um, <laughs> I'm printing out t-shirts for everybody, by the way, that says everybody passes on the first and everybody try. Everybody passes on the first try. I was up late try. last night thinking about that idea. Uh, yeah, it, you know, the idea here is that it actually is meant to be easier in the sense that it's more in tuned with the way that you do architecture. And so it should feel smarter and better and more like what your life is really like. The sort of subtle, slightly bad news that I would throw out there is, I think that's true. I think this is, in fact, a better exam. I think it makes more sense. I think uh, these are good decisions that NCARB has been making. Uh, uh, the one thing I'm not 100% sure about is whether it's easier to take the exam. I think there's something to the idea of just taking a couple weeks and you know, focusing on systems or focusing on contracts or something like that. There's a sort of soothingness to just be able to block everything else out and just focus on those issues and get yourself up to speed uh, and then just go take an exam on that. This sort of takes away that, that soothingness and I have to really think about it along a long-term uh, thing. And don't forget, uh, for additional opinions on that, uh, check out our previous podcast yes. where we had three architects give their very strong opinions on uh, on on that topic yeah so. and you know when it comes down to it uh, is it harder you know no when it comes down to it it's probably a little bit easier uh, but essentially uh, being an architect is a complicated thing uh, it's been a complicated thing for a long time the exam is doing its damnedest to uh, find a way to sort of be a little bit of a gatekeeper. That's not really what it's trying to do, but you know, a little bit trying to make sure that people are reasonably competent. One of the things that the folks from NCARB said to us when we were meeting with them a couple months ago, uh, they, it was a very interesting moment where they said a number of times in a number of different ways that one of the things that people complained about the exam uh, was that it felt like a lot of the questions were uh, very specific and difficult, but not necessarily meaningful. And their intention is to really back away from that, get rid of that sort of rote memory specific uh, kind of thing, and really move into the idea of meaningful questions. So questions that are about uh, understanding a scenario, being able to make reasonable decisions from the information that you're given, and then answering those uh, issues. 
And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's gonna make it a better exam. But like I say, it's not necessarily easier for you in the very strict sense of studying for it. All right, let's take a look, uh, moving on a little bit here. So we've started talking about this a little bit already. Uh, is there a best order for taking the exams? And uh, on this one, there's a couple of different ways to start thinking about this. So the first thing is that if you're doing the transition plan, uh, which has three exams in 4.0, which would be programming, planning, and practice, construction documents and services, and site planning and design, then you can take two exams, which would be uh, in our, the way we talk about it, uh, numbers uh, four and numbers five. Uh, and so this is essentially the design portion and the kind of CD sets portions. So those are called project, pro project, project planning and design and project development and documentation. So one way to think of it is I do the three plus these two uh, and I am therefore done with the entire exam. Uh, so I can do uh, a transition from a seven exam to a six exam and somehow manage to do it in five exams. It's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, we've got other uh, podcasts and, and uh, webinars that uh, are available to check that out. And there's a bunch of information about that uh, on uh, the NCARB site as well. So that's one approach is sort of doing this, uh, this transition approach. It does mean that you will go from one type of exam, which is doing the 4.0, uh, the three exams in 4.0, uh, into directly into this other type, uh, and you're jumping into the two biggest, these are the enormous exams. So comparatively, uh, four and five are very big exams. You have to realize that essentially what was in a lot of other exams suddenly shows up mostly in these two. Now, just to, just to uh, add to what you're saying, when you say they're really big exams, <clears throat> I think these are the largest exams. Yeah. They're not um, necessarily they're not crazy like big, but twice yeah. as many questions or anything like that, but they're more questions than the other ones. Uh, and I think really what you're getting at is the range uh, yeah. and depth of topics that you kind of have to have knowledge of is, is a lot greater in these two exams, right? Yeah, so for example, uh, structures and, and systems uh, and detailing and design issues uh, and uh, even planning issues, uh, you're going to find all of those topics are essentially covered in these two exams. So there's just a lot of stuff to get through. Uh, and it's just a very wide range, as you say. Um, so kind of diving into those two will be quite a thing. Like it'll, uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be quite the, quite the leap. But you get through the whole thing in five exams, so there's some big benefits from that. Um, the other ways of starting to think about this, as uh, Mark was just starting to talk about it a few minutes ago, um, I think we can safely sort of draw a line between the first two and then three through six. And so I would absolutely take one and two together and then take uh, three, four, five, and six together. Uh, if there's no reason, like if you are not part of the transition plan or anything like that, and you're just, you know, sort of thinking of it abstractly, you're just gonna start in five and you're just about ready to, to get going, 
I don't think there's any big advantage in doing them out of order. Uh, I think doing three, four, five, and six makes a lot of sense. They sort of build on each other. Uh, you feel, I think, a little more confident as you're moving through them because you've already started talking about certain issues and it becomes clear uh, when you're talking about it's kind of a general idea versus when you start getting into more specific uh, concepts. So to me, I would do three, four, five, and six together and I would do one and two together. Now, whether I do one and two first, I think that's wholly a different question. I think whether you do one, two, three, four, five, six, or whether you do three, four, five, six, one, two, uh, or two, one, I don't think it really matters, but I would definitely think of them in those two groups. And maybe a way to think about it just, um, I don't know, as a, as, an, as a way to make a decision about which of those groups you start with. Um, those, the, the exams one and two are, are shorter exams. Um, the number of questions, you know, not like a, not by a, a hundred questions difference, but you know, but there's ten, or, 10 or 15, 20 questions less. Um, so it might be a good idea, you know, if you wanted to kind of get your feet wet and, uh, and, and kind of get going, maybe you focus on those guys to kind of get you going. And then as Mike is saying, exams three, you know, from three to five, it really does build in terms of the depth of content that you really get into. Um, and then six, I think, is a little bit less. I think so kind of tails off a little bit, maybe. Yeah, six is more like one and two in terms of the complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's there's a lot of potential. There's a pretty wide range of potential questions there too, but there are fewer questions. It's on the same scale as as one and two. So I think six is the sort of easiest from that standpoint. You, you know, you never know because you can always get a hard question, but uh, definitely six is going to be the easiest of the three, four, five, six. Uh, and then one and two, as you say, are relatively small and straightforward and might be a good one uh, to just kind of get, get used to the new format. Um, so doing them right in order, not a bad idea. Yeah, seems to make sense. Now, having said that, uh -oh. <laughs> I, always, I always need to say, you know, there is no perfect way to do this. And if for some reason you felt like, you know, I really am good at construction, uh, I've been doing a lot, I've been you know, on the job site on a bunch of projects, I feel super comfortable with that. I just want to start with something I know so I can get a win under my belt. All right, start with six, right? There's no problem with that. Whatever system you come up, there is no golden order to this. There is no way that, there's no specific like cheat way to, you know, if I do it in a different order, I'm gonna win the game, you know? You do it in whatever way feels comfortable to you. Having looked at it, to us, seems like pretty much in order, or in those two groups at least, is probably the smartest way to go. Uh, so that's what I would say about that. Uh, I think we could delve a lot deeper in there, but I think that pretty much uh, kind of covers the way that at least I would think about it. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the question types. So uh, under 4.0 and all the previous uh, exam types, there have been three different question types. Well, actually 4.0 had three different question types. The previous ones before that only had two. Uh, and those uh, three are multiple choice, uh, fill in all, or uh, excuse me, check all that apply, and then fill in the blank. So multiple choice just means there's a general question. That question has only the context that it has in the question. It's quite possible there might be some uh, other piece of information they might give you, like a graph or a chart or 
something like that. But essentially, it's just whatever is in the question. And then there's four possible answers. And of those four possible answers, one of them is the correct answer. Uh, intriguingly, the other answers, uh, in the way that they're thinking about it now at least, and also I think pretty much in 4.0 as well, but definitely now, the idea is that the other answers, while not being the correct answer, are plausible answers. So they're not right, but they are not completely out of the blue. Uh, so the idea is that all four answers are in the milieu that are plausible, one of which is correct. Check all that apply is going to be uh, sort of similar. All the information you need is in the question. There may be uh, you know, an additional chart or something that goes with it, but essentially most of them will, all the information will be within the question. And then of the six possible answers that they'll give you, uh, you will choose all the ones that apply that are correct for that statement, for that question. And uh, in those, same thing, uh, that the time when you would use a check all that apply is in a situation where there's you know, a question type that just doesn't want to be narrowed down to one answer. So it's going to be something like, uh, you know, uh, what are the components in something? Or what are the uh, uh, types of uh, codes that you might uh, have to deal with for uh, commercial structure? Something like that. Where there's, it just makes sense to have multiple possible answers. And so the check all that apply uh, is where you'll get that. And then it'll tell you whether, are you checking two? checking three or you're checking four, uh, but it'll give you some number and then you just have to check those. It won't be a situation where it, like it won't say check all that apply and then you have no idea whether it's two or three uh, that you need to check. Uh, it will actually tell you how many answers you need to uh, put in, which is really helpful because those could be really annoying uh, if you don't know uh, what, how many correct answers are. And then the fill in the blank, um, they started doing a, a couple years ago. And the fill in the blanks are numerical answers. Uh, so it's situations like, uh, here's some information about a site. Here's the dimensions of the site. Uh, how many cars could you fit in the parking lot on that site? Uh, and you would be able to say, yes, 95 cars or something like that. And so it would be a number that fills in. Uh, it should be pretty clear uh, what the um, units are. The units should actually be in uh, the fill-in bl uh, blank space. So it shouldn't be a question of what the units are. That part, they're not trying to trick you. The question may be tricky, but they're not trying to trick you in sort of faking you out by making you answer in a different unit type. Um, or if they are, it should at least say it directly what units uh, those are. Uh, Often, they will accept a range of numbers uh, on the fill-in-the-blank. So, uh, like it might be in the 95 cars. Well, if I did it uh, a slightly different way of, of kind of calculating it, maybe in certain ways it would be 94 cars, and in other ways it would be 95 cars. Well, either are going to be okay. So if you get into a situation where you're not like exactly 100%, just put down the best one that you think is the right answer. And that probably means that in the fill in the blank uh, that, uh, that there's a range of possible answers 
that they've put into it. It would be unlikely that they would accept in that example something like uh, you know, 72 cars all the way up to 120 cars. Like that doesn't make any sense. But if there's some way, a couple different ways of calculating something out, and you know, maybe you're uh, calculating out a uh, amount of stormwater runoff or something like that, uh, and uh, if you take it to a certain number of decimals uh, during your calculation, you'll get a slightly different number than if you've rounded off during your uh, calculations. So those kinds of things they're going to allow for that kind of uh, range. They're not going to expect you to be uh, at a super uh, tight exact uh, number. So those three have always been, uh, or at least recently been, on the exam. And you will definitely have a bunch of those. In fact, they even said <clears throat> that they were going to try to re sort of reorganize their existing questions. And the ones that are relevant, they were going to bring some of them over into this new exam because they've already got a bunch of multiple choice, check all that apply and fill in the blanks. Yeah, if you, so imagine, if you imagine that you're trying to put together a new exam and you have to have a bunch of different versions of that exam going kind of all the time for everybody. So there's multiple, they call them forms. Uh, there's multiple forms of the exam, which means groupings of questions. Right. Uh, and you have to have, you know, have to have this changeover all the time and you have to be able to do many different versions of these constantly. That's an awful lot of questions. You have to have thousands and thousands of questions sort of at your fingertips to be able to do this. And they're just not on the drop of a dime going to start, turn around, and have all brand new questions for 5.0. I'm sure that the vast majority of questions, at least in the first year or two, are going to be essentially the same questions pulled in, the ones that they feel meet the requirements, their current requirements, kind of reorganized in terms of where they go, and then reused. And then they'll be adding, I'm sure they're already adding, but they'll be adding new multiple choice, new check all that apply, new fill in the blanks uh, to supplement the ones that they've got. So that's an example about how it's organized differently, but it's you know in many ways still the same exam. Which I think is probably a good thing for if you're taking this exam because these guys have to basically, you know, their process for developing questions is they, they go through this whole thing and then they put the question into the exam and it's kind of in a test form for a while right. and they vet it and it's successful or not successful and then they keep it or maybe they refine it. So you, in theory, these questions are going to be ones that have been thoroughly tested for a long time um, and should be pretty high quality questions, which means they're not going to be these crazy questions that don't make any sense. They should be pretty straightforward and yeah. achieve kind of what they're trying to achieve. And people come up to me all the time and talk to me about like, you know, I got this crazy question. It didn't make any sense at all. And like, I don't, you know, uh, often what that means is that's probably a test question. Yeah. That's probably a question that they've gone through a number of rounds of process. But really, until you put it in front of the actual test taker, you just don't know, right? You know, you just don't know how people are going to react to it. Uh, and, you know, people who are in the writing stage or people who have, a, you know, more experience or something may see something really quickly and easily. But younger architects or people who are in the test taking stage of something uh, may see it very, very differently. And so often when you get those really crazy ones, it's actually not going to count for or against you. It's just there. They, th they, they sort of sprinkle them through and then they learn from that and either it works and they keep it for future use or it doesn't work and they toss it out or rewrite it or something for the future. Uh, so yeah, one of the th one of the takeaways from that is, don't don't sweat it. You know, like you'll get some that just are just nuts, and it's okay. 
hopefully that's one of the ones. Yeah. Let's just say that's one of the ones that won't count against you. <laughs> Rule of thumb, if you have a crazy question, it's a test question. It's a test question. Move there on. you go. <laughs> right? <laughs> so those three are going to be the bulk of the questions, but there are two new question types. And one's called hotspots, and the other one is called dragon place. And they're essentially the same type of questions, slightly different from each other. But the idea here is we've gotten rid of the vignettes. So for those of you who have heard horror stories about the vignettes of uh, 4.0 and, and 3.1, uh, the vignettes are gone. Uh, so they're still there if you're taking the 4.0 version, which is still available for a while. But uh, if you are taking the 5.0, there are no vignettes. And that means there's no drawing. So there's, there's no place where you're going to sit down and draw a drawing. Now, the hotspots and the dragon place are meant to be sort of simple, simplified versions of that. You're going to be mostly focused on drawings. Uh, you're going to be uh, sort of using the process to say, here's some piece of information that's going to be given to you. And then you're going to have to say, I understand this information. Here's a specific question. I can locate that uh, on this set of drawings, on this, on this drawing. So the hotspot means that it's literally a drawing and I'm being asked a question about that drawing and there's going to be a location, a hotspot, on the drawing that I need to go over and put a little X mark in. Now I won't physically put an X mark in, I'll just leave the cursor there. But uh, the idea is that I am putting this X marks the spot in, on the hotspot in the place that answers the question. So it's kind of like drawing, but you're not really drawing anything. You're just sort of <laughs> commenting on a drawing. You're like pointing at drawings. You're pointing at drawings, <laughs> uh, which I don't know, feels a, sort of like a, what people do today. It's a more primitive so. way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. That, right. And then drag and place is sort of a, a similar idea where there's going to be a, a base drawing and then there'll be a bunch of information, uh, might be a couple of things, it might be up to four or five things, uh, that you then would be able to grab and move and place into the drawing. So clearly these have to be relatively simple drawings and are getting across pretty big picture ideas in order to be able to have you draw something where you can grab it and just place it into a drawing. So you're not making any lines, you're not calling something a wall, you're not uh, putting a, drawing a window in or anything like that. Uh, all you're doing is placing the elements that they give you. So the example that NCARB has used for now for a little while is you have a wall section and then it'll say, all right, here's a vapor barrier. And it'll give you a line that's like a dashed line or something. And you have to grab that dashed line that's labeled vapor barrier and put it into the wall section. And so you would have to read the question to understand, well, where does it go? Where does, you know, uh, vapor barrier usually goes on the warm side of the insulation. So uh, this, is this a wall section in Atlanta? Well, then the you know warm side of the insulation might be, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, on the outside. If this is say Chicago, well then the warm side of the insulation is going to be on the inside of the wall, right? So there would be some piece of information I would have to know enough about uh, 
where a vapor barrier goes to be able to make a rational decision and then literally place that line into uh, the drawing. Now, clearly, drag and place and hotspots are pretty similar, right? You're pointing at a drawing. Just in the drag and place, I'm pointing with another part of a drawing and I'm just sort of placing it in there. Hotspots, I'm just pointing at the drawing. Um, but they're pretty similar. And so they're kind of about drawings and kind of understanding the issues that the drawings represent uh, and being able to sort of be discursive about it in some way. So there's a question that relates specifically to this drawing and then I have to answer it. So those are the two new ones. And that's the, I the idea is that those are replacing uh, the vignettes. So there's no other drawings that are going to be required on these exams. So the five question types that you have are multiple choice, check all that apply, fill in the blanks, uh, the hot spots, and the dragon places. So those are the only five types of questions you'll get. Then there's this other element which is called the case study. The case study is a way of grouping question types together. So it's more of a meta thing, right? It's not a new question type. It's a way of grouping question types together. So the way that most of the exams will work is you'll have some number of multiple choice. Uh, so multiple choice, check all apply, fill in the blanks. Let's say you have that for, uh, um, let's say 80 questions. And then you get to the end of that and there's a new section. And that new section might be case study. Let's say case study one. Sorry, my spelling is bad here. Case study one, and that might be, say, 20 questions. So I go through in the first 80, I've got check all that apply, I got fill in the blank, I've got a couple of hotspots, I got a couple drag in place. And then I get to the case study, and a case study is going to be a separate part of the, uh, like it'll look a little different, it'll have its own sort of aesthetic to it. Uh, I'm going to get to that case study spot, there'll be a bunch of information, I'm going to be able to reference all of that information, and then those 20 questions will all be answered using the reference material that the case study gives you. Inside the case study, I will also be using multiple choice, check all that apply, fill in the blank, hotspots, drag in place. So all of those types of questions will show up in the case studies as well as in the sort of general multiple choice uh, section. So if you imagine uh, that they have these sort of uh, different ways of attacking uh, the issues, if you think of the, the question types as these sort of different ways of approaching it, I'm going to use those in the general open session as well as in the case study. Now, the case studies might be fewer than 20 questions. I think uh, the minimum they said was probably around 12, although that's probably a fluid number. Uh, it might be as high as, I think, 25, something like that. But it's probably in the kind of 15 to 20, 22 range. I don't imagine it'll be much different from that. Uh, it's possible, especially on a couple of the bigger exams, you might actually have two case studies. So you might have, say, 80, 20, and 20, uh, something along those lines. Um, the other issue here is if you practice this for a little bit, you may realize you really, like, maybe there's something about the case studies you just want to get them over with. 
So you can go to the case study first, do all the case studies uh, questions, and then go up to the general multiples. Or you can just follow it in the order that it's given to you and start with number one in the multiple choice section and then just run all the way through the whole thing. But every exam will have at least one case study and some other number of sort of general individual questions. So there's no reason that any question up in this first section, uh, you know, question, uh, you know, one question does not relate to the next question. These are all separate questions. Uh, there's no reason to think that any of them are related to each other. Uh, they're all completely individual types. It's possible you might get one or two that use the same chart or something like that, but they're essentially all separate questions. The case study questions are all decidedly uh, working together about a particular topic. That's the entire point, uh, and that you're given a bunch of information, and then that information is what you would use to answer the question. And the reason for that, the thinking about the case study, is just what we were talking about a few minutes ago, about this idea of trying to move away from uh, sort of just kind of rote memory type questions. And that what they really want to set up is this idea of scenarios, of kind of what an architect really does, right? You're much more likely to have a situation where uh, I've got uh, a program that has been given to me by an owner, I've got a zoning uh, or a building code, I've got uh, some other you know, UL listing about some wall types, and I have to somehow understand what each of these different things are telling me and then make a rational decision about is this a one hour wall or a two hour wall? Is this, uh, you know, uh, how many toilets am I gonna need in this, uh, in this building type? You know, like that you would have a bunch of information and you'd be able to sort of piece together answers to questions. So the case studies are really the sort of uh, innovative element uh, here this is the, the place where they're really trying to sort of test this idea about uh, these exams are really about how you think about architecture, not just sort of individual one-off, uh, here's a question, here's an answer, here's a question, here's an answer. This is trying to really make it like how uh, an architecture firm would work, how you as an architect would work in that firm. So all types will be in all of those sections. Uh, I'd be surprised if you got a huge amount of hotspots and dragon places in the case studies, because I think that there's just sort of a different type of question that they're really going to be shooting for there, but I'm sure you'll get one or two in each of those uh, case studies. Uh, in terms of the other ones, uh, I would imagine, just like now, most of them are going to be regular multiple choice questions, and then you'll get a few check all that apply, you'll get a few uh, fill in the blank, you'll get a few hotspots, you'll get a few dragon place, but the, the majority of them will probably still be uh, the sort of regular multiple choice. So case studies, new concept, but not actually its own question type. It's more just kind of a grouping, a way of thinking about the question types. All right, let's move on. So Mark mentioned in the introduction that uh, there's sort of a uh, an idea of sort of an upper level thinking about how, how these things were put together and how they're thinking about the questions now. One of the things that they got a lot of complaints about were these uh, question types that took rote memorization, uh, that 
they weren't really meaningful to an architect who you know can look up uh, something that's just a simple rote memorization type. Like you don't need to know that. You just need to know how to look it up. Um, and so that concept was showing up a lot in the exam and people were just unhappy with that. And so they have a very strong desire to sort of move away from that. So the way that they think of that, this is called uh, Bloom's taxonomy. Bloom was a guy who thought a lot about how, uh, how we think and how we make decisions. And it's apparently the sort of base way that a lot of people uh, think about how questions are made for, um, uh, for all sorts of different topics not just architects. So those kind of, that kind of rote memory elements, that's really down here in the sort of remember zone. Uh, and so you can kind of draw a line across uh, there and think, all right, this stuff, that's all stuff that you should probably know, uh, but it's not, uh, it's not something that you need to like think that the questions are going to be about. So you're not going to get a question that says, uh, how many square feet is an acre, right? Um, I always get it mixed. Is it 43,560, I think, something like that, uh, right? But you're not going to get that, that kind of question. That's just a remember question. So the bottom of the pyramid, there may be some big advantages of being able to remember easily that you don't have to spend time looking it up or finding some of the, that you have that information at your fingertips. So it doesn't mean don't remember things. What it means is you're not gonna get that as a direct question. And then the other thing that you're not gonna get, you're not gonna get anything that says, okay, make a design. The create thing, the top of this pyramid, that's that hardest thing to do. That's that, you know, all the, the you know, energies it takes to be an architect. This exam is not testing you to see if you're a brilliant architect. It is not meant to see uh, if you know everything or if you can make something beautiful, right? It's not about the creation end of things. It's not about even the idea of doing original work. Uh, the exam is about competency. It's about being able to take information, understand what the issues are that are related to it, use those issues, and be able to then kind of take them to a little bit of a higher level of being able to evaluate and really sort of understand the impact uh, of, those, of that set of decision making. So uh, the exam is going to be about these middle four ideas. Understand, apply, analyze, and evaluate. And of those, there's going to be a line right through the middle there. And so we're going to have the upper level of evaluate and analyze. And those are going to be the types of questions where you really have to uh, make a judgment. You have to make a leap. So there's a bunch of information, and that information is very useful in terms of understanding what to do. But now it's not just uh, that here's the obvious right answer. I have to actually think about it and say, is this the best answer? Is this something, do I understand this as... Uh, something that I could justify given the information that I've been given. So I am analyzing it beyond just knowing what the reasonable answer is. And that's versus some of the lower ideas about apply and understand. So apply and understand is, you know, you should sort of basically understand a bunch of uh, aspects of architecture uh, that 
uh, if I'm looking at a uh, plumbing riser diagram, uh, I should uh, be able to say, yes, there should be a clean out uh, at the point where the stack uh, turns and goes uh, towards the sewer in the street, right? Something like that. That's a sort of apply and understand. I should understand that there should be a clean out. I should be able to apply that piece of knowledge that I know. It's not just a remembering thing because it's not like, uh, you know, just a number. I have to actually understand how uh, the plumbing generally works. Uh, and that I should be able to, to sort of say, yeah, there should be a clean out right there. So those are considered the kind of lower level applying uh, what's in what you need to know in terms of being a competent architect. And then the evaluate and analyze are considered these upper level thinking. And that's where I'm moving beyond just knowing something and I'm making judgment calls, right? So maybe I have a complicated situation and now like, do I put in a clean out? Is there a clean out? Like that becomes a sort of harder evaluation. So you'll notice that uh, when I over here in the notes on the side, there'll be some upper level and then there'll be many understand and apply. So the way that this is sort of generally broken down is that most of the questions will fall into the bigger part of the triangle. And then a fewer bunch of the questions will fall into the evaluate and analyze. Uh, so it won't be a situation where you have to constantly be justifying uh, all of your decisions. It won't be a situation where everything is all about analysis. And it also won't be a situation that you by accident will get all of just the hardest questions. You know, you're not going to get a hundred evaluate questions. Uh, they have set it up in such a way that every time uh, there's a new form, every time you get a new grouping, that each of the uh, question types, each of the questions themselves, have been given uh, a sort of rating and that that rating applies to this triangle. And so that rating means that you'll get a certain number that are apply and understand and you'll get a certain number that are evaluate and analyze. You won't get any of the direct memory and you won't get any of the create. And I think, <clears throat> I mean, it'd be good to get your thoughts on this, Mike, but you know, when you look at this triangle, um, one of the keys I think is, is, is to realize that it builds, right? That the, these levels of, of understanding um, build upon each other. So in order, in order to sort of have a, an apply level, right? You have to already have an, a, the remember level and the understanding level. So they all kind of build on each other. Absolutely. The other thing is, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think that also kind of means that the apply and understand are arguably maybe a little bit easier and a little bit less in depth than, uh, or require a little bit less deep of an understanding compared to the evaluate and analyze. So if you look through NCARB's exam guides for each of their exams, they have all the objectives laid out that they're assessing you on. And each objective has an EA, or I think it's a EA and then AU or U, I don't know if I might have yeah, it backwards. Yeah, I think it's but EA and UA or something like that. But yeah. those stand, but you'll, you'll EA, see, now that you know this, you'll, you'll yeah, recognize it. EA stands, you know, for evaluate and analyze. So it'll be, you know, they're, they're going to be focusing on those types of uh, evaluation there. And then they're going to be, you know, they, the AU are the ones that, um, you know, uh, are applying and understand. Which I think if you're a test taker, what does that mean? Well, that means that maybe those objectives that are evaluate and analyze, man, you really, you need to know them really, really well. 
um, the apply and understand ones. I mean, you need, you need, you need to know them better than, you know, uh, what kind of brick is this? Is it a, you know, a standard brick or, or not? Um, which is more of a remember kind of, kind of level. Um, but it's not as massively in-depth as the evaluate and analyze might be. Right? And Do different, yeah, absolutely. And different objectives, uh, different portions of the exam will, f will get weighted more towards evaluate and analyze and other ones will be weighted more towards uh, apply and understand. Like, for example, um, you might get uh, a number of apply and understand questions that are very sort of structural calculation type situations where you need to sort of understand how to do some parts of it, but you're not really going to be expected to do a structural analysis on a building, right? That's, that's beyond the scope of what's expected uh, uh, in this situation. But you might be required in a different uh, objective to have a series of pieces of information that have been given to you, analyze those, and decide where the building should be built, right? Where you're given a uh, a soils plan and your and a soils report and some other information and you should be able to look through make uh, reasonable decisions find out of the choices that you have available to you what's the sort of the most logical one where it's not going to be a straightforward thing you just have to be able to analyze that and make it a, a reasonable decision from that so it's not that in structures you wouldn't ever get anything in the higher level it's that they'll be spread out in different parts of the exam. So absolutely, it's very useful to sort of take a look at those uh, objectives, and that should really help your sort of, you know, guide you through uh, what you're uh, thinking about when you're doing some studying, about whether you really need to know these sort of abstract ideas, or whether it's just about sort of understanding what the rules are and recognizing formulas and, you know, right. things like that. Which makes me remember minimum competency. Yes. That's all they're assessing you on. You don't have to be an expert. On Just anything. On, even the evaluate and analyze, right. they're assessing you on minimum competency. So. Right. Are you a competent architect? It is not about design. No. And in fact, it couldn't be about design. Like, imagine it was about design. Think about how mad you would be if it was about design. Because they would have a very different design idea than you, and it would drive you crazy. It's not about that. Don't even think about the idea of the word beauty or design or anything like that. Uh, if those words come up in your brain while you're taking the exam, just get up and walk out because it's too late. You've already you've already lost it. Yeah, it's not. It's about competency. It's not about any of those those kinds of issues. All right. So let's look at an example. Uh, this is an example of a sort of potential hotspot concept. So this is, uh, if you don't recognize it, uh, a quickie sketch of a um, aluminum extruded mullion. So this is a plan detail sketch. Uh, I have uh, the glass on one side, so the glass is uh, two panes with an air space. There's the air space. Uh, I have glass on the other side, the two panes with the uh, air space. Uh, and then I have this mullion in between. Let's say the question says, uh, where's the thermal break? So, all right, we have to look at this and understand what's going on here. So I can very quickly see in this section right here, I'm not going to do the whole thing because it'll take too long, but uh, you can see that uh, that's the aluminum uh, part that's at the exterior, and it has a little snap-on. That's what that little thing is there. That's a little snap-on spot so that they can just snap that on and give it a nice finished look. You'll often see that on a, 
uh, aluminum extruded uh, curtain wall system or storefront system. Uh, clearly, this is a screw in the middle, and that's holding a couple of things together. So I have the outside, I have the inside, and I don't want the aluminum of the outside to be touching the aluminum of the inside. If they do touch, then I get a cold bridge. I'm going to get cold is just going to come streaming in it, which is effectively actually the opposite of that. I'm losing heat to the outside is what's really happening, but we call it a cold bridge. And so I'm getting that coldness coming right in. And not only is it annoying because I'm, you know, trying to condition the space in the middle of winter and I'm bringing the outside winter in because that uh, metal is outside and inside and it's going to just be a problem. But the other problem is it's going to cause a huge amount of condensation. So I'm going to get water all over the place. I'm going to get damaged. People are going to slip on the floor. I'll get sued, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of reasons why I don't want to have the aluminum outside be the same piece of aluminum that comes to the inside. So here's an example where I've got that outer piece uh, that's snapping on. And then I have this inner piece, which is in this particular example, could be a bunch of different versions, obviously. But this is also aluminum. And this is the part that's being screwed into place into this piece of aluminum. So what's happening here is I have an outer element and I have an inner element and the thermal break wants to keep them separated. So where is that? Well, that's this thing right there. It's that one piece, and that thing is probably made out of uh, neoprene, some sort of hard plastic, some sort of hard rubber, something like that. Uh, and it fits right in, it snaps into place, it's very strong, uh, and it completely separates the outside aluminum from the inside aluminum. So I would have to put my hotspot cursor somewhere in that zone and then say, all right, click, that's where it is. Any of the, anywhere in that would function as a possible answer. So that's an example of hotspot. Let's look at one more of those. So here's an example. Uh, imagine the question says something like, here's an existing uh, situation, there's a proposed site, uh, there's a couple of buildings around, uh, there's a park in one section, uh, and the people want to uh, be thinking about where they might be able to put in uh, some solar panels. Uh, so where would be a good place to put in some solar panels? So clearly, one of the things you'd be thinking about is, well, here's the north arrow. So I'm going to be thinking about where the sun is coming from, right? So the sun is going to be mostly coming uh, from uh, the south and a little bit from the east and the west. So uh, I also have to think about the context. So in this case, I have a, an existing six-story building. I have a couple of three-story buildings, and then I have a 12-story building. Well, that 12-story building would cast a really big shadow across my site, except it's up on the north side. So its shadow is going to be mostly going in these other directions. So 
this building, while it seems sort of scary because uh, it's a you know potentially a big shadow that could uh, damage my uh, ability to put uh, uh, this solar panel in place, it's actually not really going to impact us any because for the most part, it's always going to be shadowing in some other location. This one though is a six-story building on the south side of our site, so there's definitely going to be some shadow that's going to come along from that building. Now I didn't put any uh, dimensions on here, so we'd have to have some system for understanding how big the shadow would be. But I think that the answer here would be where would you put those um, those solar panels uh, in, a, in order to get as much sun as possible. I think the answer would be kind of anywhere in sort of this area. So as long as I was somewhere in that spot, I don't have to worry about this shadow getting to me. Uh, if I was right here, well, it depends. I'm, you know, in the winter, that shadow of the building might, uh, might get there. But over here, it's just not going to get there. That's an example of a hotspot where the computer understands there's a difference between this area compared to this area. It can tell that this area is potentially going to have a shadow on it. So that's another kind of, for the programming example of the uh, you know, exam number three, this would be the kind of hotspot thing you might get in that situation. So you have to be within the right area, but there's not a specific, it's not like the panel must be exactly right there. You know, as long as we're reasonably close in that, it's going to understand what you mean and it's going to allow you to say, yes, that's a good spot. Let's look at an example of the uh, drag and drop. So imagine that you got this, and this was a, an RCP of an office, a reflected ceiling plan of an office, and all that was here when you uh, opened up the exam was just the ceiling grid. And then off to the side, you had a series of uh, small elements that uh, you would have to place into that drawing. So I have a light, I've got a supply diffuser, I've got a return register, uh, maybe there's a couple of other things like uh, uh, an exit sign or something like that, and I have to place them into this office. So we've gone ahead and we've placed uh, the lights. So those are in that location. I've already shown them in. So there's the two lights. And then we put in the return grill right here. So this is uh, the thicker wall, presumably is the outside. Uh, and then this is presumably like the corridor towards the inn. So having it supply to the outside kind of makes sense and having the return towards the inside probably makes sense. Uh, where would I best put this supply register? So it's a two by two grid. Uh, where should it go? How would I grab it and place it into place? Well, the only possible answers I have once I've located uh, the lights and the return like this, uh, I can't really put it here or here or here, or here, unless I know for sure those are full 24 by 24 inch panels. 
but my guess is they're not, uh, and we don't have enough information to know that they're full. So essentially, this whole line is out, because that might be a 22-inch wide panel. This is going to be an off-the-shelf piece. It needs to be the full size. So none of those ones along the side would logically be a place to go. But that still leaves open these ones down the middle here, and also uh, these ones along this edge. So where would I put it? Would I put it right here? Well, no, I wouldn't put it right there because if I put the supply diffuser right there, the air is going to come out and it's going to go whoop right back into the return. It's not going to work. So you should understand that the supply wants to be at least a few feet away, and the question would presumably give you some specific number. Uh, but you should know that it should be at least a few feet away so that they don't short circuit each other. So where would it go? Well, I would bet that it would probably go right there where it's very far away from the return, uh, but it's in a full uh, two by two uh, ceiling grid element. So it's easy to sort of grab it, put it into place, know that it's gonna be towards the outside wall. It's gonna supply the air exactly where you want it. Uh, it's gonna be reasonably far, although you know, you're not over fretting about it, but it's reasonably far from the return grill. Uh, it doesn't get in the way of the two lights uh, everything seems to make the most sense. So this would be an example where I'd have a series of these little items and I would grab them and place them into place. Uh, and this is essentially taking over the place of the role of the vignette that uh, is uh, currently uh, in 4.0 being used for uh, the systems exam where you have to do a whole big complicated uh, ceiling layout. Uh, so this is a much simpler version. Although you could imagine it could be relatively complicated. It could be a much bigger uh, plan. It could be uh, a more interesting or more sort of complex uh, way of thinking about it. But the idea here is that you have to know enough to be able to find a sort of reasonable balance of lighting. Uh, for example, if you had laid it out in such a way uh, that the lights were uh, like right there and right there, well, you know, that's not reasonable. That doesn't, that doesn't light the room up, you know. Uh, that, that's just not a, a good answer. Uh, so it would be able to tell that that's not any good. So you'd have to find a reasonable layout and then a reasonable layout of the return and the supply. So this is kind of an example. We could talk about any topic like this. Uh, we could talk about uh, wall sections. We could talk about... Uh, you know, any number of different uh, ways of sort of putting these pieces of information together. Uh, but I think this is kind of a, a good example of the way that they're likely to be using the drag and drop. And then just to kind of uh, be clear about what the, what's going on with the case study. So imagine you've got, uh, you know, all of your other multiple choice questions uh, you've already gone through. and those are up there. And then I get to a spot where now I have the case study and it's gonna give me a scenario. So scenario, I'm just gonna stop there. because I'm <laughs> uh, So I have a scenario and that scenario is gonna be a written paragraph that's going to say, all right, here's what we're talking about. Here's the big picture of what's going on. Here's a couple of pieces of information. And then here's all of your reference material. So in this particular example, I've got a soils report, a photo of something, a zoning code, 
a survey, a shadow study, uh, some program information, and then within this body, I'm gonna have a series of questions. So I'll have question number one, I'll have question two, question three, et cetera, et cetera. And then I need to look at all of these different references in order to understand what my questions, how to answer my questions. So when I click on the soils report, that entire soils report will show up. When I click on the zoning code, some big chunk of the zoning code, maybe it's a 20 page section of a zoning code will show up. Uh, survey would probably be just you know a drawing and a program might be you know a 15 page or 20 page uh, document so these pretty lengthy documents and then some other ways of just sort of getting across like photos and surveys and floor plans and things like that will be given to you as reference material and so one of the questions you're gonna have is alright so what do I do like do I start reading the soils report and then I go over to the zoning and read the zoning and then go over to the you know, program and read the entire program? It's like, no, no, I definitely don't do that, right? There is no way within the allotted time, unless you are a very speedy reader, there is no way that within the allotted time you could read all of this information and then go read the questions and answer them. That's not what's meant. That's not how you would do it in the office, right? Remember, this is trying to sort of mimic how you work as an architect. So what you would likely do is a couple different ways you can approach it. Approach number one, uh, and this is the one that probably I would do, is I'm going to take a look at the photo. I'm going to go in, look at the soils report, and get a kind of glance through it. Get a sort of a you know 30, 40 second kind of understanding of kind of what's in there, what kind, you know, what's the gist of what it's telling me. So I have an idea of what, what kind of information I can find there. And then I'm going to look at the zoning code and just get a little bit of an idea, like what kind of stuff are they giving me? What's, what's the range of possibility? Uh, one of the things I've heard, by the way, is that uh, as you're scrolling through some of these longer documents, it can be a little annoying. It's a little glitchy. Uh, so just heads up about that. Um, I, I hear that it actually is just sort of annoying. It's not actually going to take that long. It's just a little glitch. But so these, some of these longer documents, you want to get good at uh, how you sort of scan through them easily and understand what uh, is actually in there. And so I'm just going to go through them, get an idea of what's in there, and then I'm going to go through the questions, start to understand. I might look at it, a few of the different questions, see what the range of uh, questions are. And then if I feel comfortable that I can start answering questions without going through more fully on my uh, references, then I'm going to dive into the questions and just start going through them. And if I get to a question where I can't just answer it, then I'm going to go look in my reference and I'm going to find the information uh, or I'm going to find the information from a couple of different references and then make an evaluation. Remember we said about uh, you know, uh, analyzing an evaluation. I'm going to make that evaluation from a couple of different pieces. And then some of them might be more straightforward where I find the, you know, what the setback is on the zoning code. And that's a sort of understanding what a setback is. It's a being able to apply it on a design. So that's where I just go look it up. I find it. I make sure there's nothing unusual about it. And I can answer the question. So both types, the upper level and the lower level, are likely to show up uh, on these case studies. So that first way of thinking about this is I take a quick look get an idea of what's in each of these different uh, reference elements after I've read the scenario. And then I take a quick look through a bunch of the questions, realize if I'm comfortable, I move forward and start answering one through 20 or whatever it is. 
The other way to do it is just understand what the titles are for all of those and then literally just start going through all the questions and then only go to the reference material as you think you need it. Uh, there's a whole school of thought that says, uh, I don't really need to know about the soils report until I need to know about the soils report. I don't want to confuse myself. I don't want to be putting lots of numbers in my head uh, when you know, the soils question doesn't come up until number 17. Right? So a whole other way of thinking about it is just leave the reference material alone until you feel like you can't answer one of the questions and then go find the information. I think either of those are reasonable ways to approach it. I like the idea of just sort of doing a quick look through the references just so that you feel comfortable moving in that there's not some surprise element. I think uh, one thing that we kind of discovered when we were talking about, <clears throat> about these is to remember, the, the, so on a case study, there's 10 or 15, maybe, maybe even 20 questions, right? So there's not 50 questions on a case study. There's probably 10 or 15, right? Um, that also, and also, the questions that are in a case study are not weighted any differently than the other questions on the exam. So if you had a 100-question test <clears throat> and there were two case studies and each of them had 15 questions, that means your two case studies are 30 questions. And they're, they're weighted the exact same as the other 70 questions. So just in terms well, as, of... as <clears throat> the 30 questions of, of the 70. Like, each question is the same weight. Right, so uh, I think the big idea here is um, don't freak out about the yeah. case studies. Um, you know, uh, in terms of your time. I mean, it's, it's good old-fashioned test-taking strategy, but, you know, it probably makes sense to go through those first 70 questions and knock them all out as best you can, and then with the remaining time you have, focus on the case studies and do the same thing. Knock out the case, the questions that you, you know pretty straightforward, and then you're going to have a group of them that might be a little bit more complicated, a little bit more in-depth, and then you focus on those and you take your time and kind of go through those. Yeah. It's maybe kind of a general strategy for how you might tackle these. So some people <laughs> say that they actually like the idea of being able to jump to the case studies first and go through them. The problem I have with that approach is you could really get lost yeah. reading zoning code and program information and looking at photos and under, like, you know, if, if you're at the very beginning, you could easily find yourself way into the process. But if you've gone through, as you say, the first 70 uh, and you've already knocked them out, you know how much time you have left. Well, all right, you have yeah. a very good idea about, okay, I've got five minutes to understand what's going on in the reference, and then I'm going to answer. I got you know, a minute per question uh, after that, and so I've got 25 total minutes and there's 20 questions. Great. You know, like I understand what I need, and I could just move through it. And you're absolutely right. This is like any of these things. If you find yourself uh, working to answer a question and it's taking you three minutes to answer a question, just move on, like guess and move on. Uh, there's no advantage to take yeah. 10 minutes to answer a single question. That's right. You, right. Don't, you don't have to have 100% to, to <laughs> right. pass the exam. Right, it's about competency. <laughs> it's not about knowing everything. Yeah. Though I know that's hard for architects because we all want to think that I we know, know everything. everything. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> all right, so the last thing to say here about uh, 5.0 is just remember it's different, but you're still the same architect, right? It's not so different that you need to be freaked out about it or anything like that. It's just organized in a, in a different way. Uh, you don't really even have to change your study process all that much. I would think it would make sense to start thinking about, if you're taking the 5.0 version, the difference uh, that uh, we've, the example we've been using about structures 
you know, when I'm thinking about it as a sort of an abstract idea, like I would in, in programming or something like that, versus when I'm thinking about it more as a detail thing. So it definitely would impact the way that I would study, but it's not really wildly different information, uh, with the subtle exception that you really do have to kind of think a little bit more about practice management, uh, because that is the sort of most new material that's on there. But it's also this is one of the smaller exams. It shouldn't be uh, too crazy. So don't fret about 5.0. It's nothing dramatic. It's all going to be fine. Everybody's going to pass the first time. That's right. There we go. <laughs> uh, Remember, so. that's our secret code. Uh, we're not <laughs> trying to be uh, smart, smart Alex about it, but instead just take that kind of mentality and, and don't sweat it too much, I guess is the gist of what we're getting at. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that uh, many of you have probably heard me say before, uh, and I think it's really important, is if you get overly worried about passing any one of these exams, you know, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to get, it's going to start driving you crazy. It's going to feel like the albatross on your shoulder, right? You're going to have, uh, if you start overthinking it, you're going to start trying to, you know, double think your guesses as what the answers are. Like, don't worry about it. You just, you're going to take a bunch of exams and you'll pass most of them, if not all of them, and you retake the ones that you didn't pass if you, if you missed a couple. It's not the end of the world. It's all straightforward. And one of the good news things here is I can guarantee if you study for the exam, you will be a better architect. So it's only positives from that standpoint. It's just that it's an annoying process to go through and, you know, well, there you go. Yeah, speaking of positives, uh, I was just looking around. Many of you may have heard this, but NCARB is giving people a, uh, a $100 gift card if they take the exam, I think, before the end of the year. So I just retweeted it. It's on our <clears throat> Black Spectacles uh, Twitter page. Uh, it's also on NCARB's uh, Twitter account. So, so grab that if you are uh, preparing to take this exam before the end of the year. Um, one question that Joseph had, which we should maybe ask here. Um, he said there have been complaints with the software for the exam being slow. Uh, Joseph, I'm assuming you're talking about the ARE 5.0. Um, and his question is, is NCARB actively working to fix these issues and should we wait to test until they are fixed? Of course, we don't know. I mean, we would presume NCARB's trying to fix them. So I think the real question is, should you wait to test until they are fixed? Which gets to the question of, hey, do I want to be a guinea pig for this exam or not? So what are yeah. your comments on that? Uh, you know, I think if you're somebody who is, that's, the, that that's going to drive you crazy. That was what I was talking about earlier, about the kind of glitchiness that uh, when you're scrolling through. The only place, it, apparently from what I've read, the only place it really shows up as a problem is in the case study type situations where I have long documents and I uh, want to scroll through and you know very quickly go through 20, 30 pages of a, a PDF, uh, and that it you'll see a it'll like go to this <laughs> uh, kind of annoying I think uh, thing where it says loading uh, in big letters, um, and I think they should they just made the <laughs> point size smaller and make everybody much happier, um, but uh, it's. You know, it might do that for literally, you know, half a second or, you know, three quarters of a second or a full second, something. It's not like it's taking five minutes to load or anything like that. At least that's from what I've heard. It hasn't been anything along those lines. But that still is very annoying for people. And so I get that that would be uh, a big problem uh, for pe people who are, who are nervous already about uh, what's going on. For me, though, I would just go ahead and take the exam when you feel ready to take the exam. I don't think that that kind of issue is really going to drive you crazy. And the other thing is, there are other ways. You don't have to scroll through the documents. You can actually uh, do uh, 
uh, what do they call it, hyperleaps uh, by using the table of contents. Uh, you can also do search terms. There's a bunch of different ways to move through. Uh, so I would just practice some of those so you feel comfortable. You're much more likely to go smoothly when you're doing that. Apparently, it's really the scrolling through that takes a long time. I'm sure they'll be on it. Uh, but when you're doing something like this, you know they have a bunch of new stuff going on. Uh, they're desperately trying to keep ahead of everybody. They're trying to build new questions. They're, they have a lot of stuff going on. They're on top of it, but it, that doesn't mean that it'll be, you know, fixed by, you know, December 10th or something like that. Like it might not be a year before those those issues get fixed. Um, sure. So uh, um, uh, the comment. I'm sorry, I'm reading someone's comment here. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, I think that that gets, just gets to the general question of. Are you the kind of person who wants to be one of the first people who take the exam and want to go through this? Um, or do you want to hang out for three to six months and sort of wait until they've quote unquote worked out the kinks? Maybe this is one of those kinks, right? So right. it's more of a question about kind of what do you, how do you want to approach this kind of stuff? And absolutely, if you're somebody, uh, if you're like ready to take the exam uh, and then you're just going to wait uh, six months to see if things are better later, like, you know, you might have a baby in six months, <laughs> right? Like who knows, right? I say, if you're ready to take the exam, take like the exam it. now. Right. It's, uh, you know, why wait? You're going to pass wait? on the first try. Come right, on. exactly. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see here. Uh, Lenny, uh, Lenny asked a question, uh, which is sort of a leading question. So thank you, Lenny. He asked, uh, are we going to get into the where we uh, talk about the study materials and where to get them? <laughs> so thanks, Lenny. That's a perfect segue. Um, let me go ahead and do that. So <clears throat> I want to thank you, Mike. Uh, and everybody who've uh, tuned in and submitted their questions today. If you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, where, as I said, we'll be focusing on a sample case study for the practice management exam. That's exam number one. You can go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register to attend. And just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike for live feedback during the broadcast. We will uh, issue a sample case study, usually about a day before. Um, so you have a an actual... Uh, you know, uh, sample to sort of work off of uh, for that uh, for that broadcast. Um, to learn more about our uh, ARE exam prep curriculum, uh, Lenny and others, uh, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the free course videos for ARE 4, ARE 5, um, or the 5 exam plan. Uh, and as I said earlier, if you want your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms really of any size. And for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE, and if you're already an AIA member, you can use coupon code STUDYGUIDE5PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. Finally, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. I promise we read every word that you write, and we will use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening.